Hello and welcome to the VIP pod. I'm Emma, one of your hosts. In this series, we meet a range of people who are visually impaired. We're hoping to raise awareness of people who've got many different sight conditions, all whilst having a great conversation and having a bit of a laugh too. Hi there, this is Rupert from the VIP pod team. Just to let you know, as with all our interviews in this series, it was recorded online remotely, so the sound quality may vary. Hello and welcome to the VIP pod. My name's Emma Martins. And my name's Michael Werdingham. Who are we talking to today, Emma? Today we are talking to the incredible Jesse Dufton. He climbed the old man ahoy, (laughs) which was quite a feat for someone who is blind. And um, but he also did it like as lead, didn't he? So that was kind of one of the extraordinary things about him. He's one of the very few blind climbers who can lead. He tells us all about that. And also, you watched the film about him, uh, which is uh, on iPlayer called uh, Climbing Blind. Yeah, and it was, I literally had vertigo by watching it. I was like, oh my goodness, it's made so well. And you follow his his um, story and what he does is just incredible. So yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. Brilliant. Well, shall we have a listen? So, Jesse, whereabouts are you from? Uh, so, I live in Loughborough at the moment. Lived here for about six years now. Is that where you're originally from or not? Not really. So, I moved uh, moved around when I was little. Spent most of my time growing up in Winchester, just north of Southampton. Then lived for quite a while in Bath when we went to university and then stayed to do a PhD there. So, wound up almost 10 years in Bath. Very nice. And are you from an area where there's lots of hills? Not really. Winchester is not a great climbing location. The closest climbing to Winchester is probably like at Swanage on the south coast, and it still takes about two hours to get there. I went to university in Sheffield. There's a lot of climbers at my uni. <laughs> there are. Sheffield is like kind of the hub of climbing in the UK, and we, we drive up there fairly regularly. So, yeah, that's kind of like the beating heart of the British climbing scene. And where did you meet Molly? So I met Molly at uh, University in Bath. We both were part of the University Mountaineering Club and got to know each other through that, really. So you were part of the GB team, were you? Tell me about that. Yeah, so I'm part of the GB paraclimbing team. So here, I guess, is where the distinction between indoor and outdoor climbing comes in. Paraclimbing is uh, competitions for climbing with people with various disabilities, not just blindness, but people who are missing, you know, hands or legs or you've got reduced power stability or like control um, because of some various ailment and the competitions take place on like artificial plumbing walls you know like man-made plumbing walls there are kind of international competitions and they set two qualifying routes and a finals route you get points for how far up the wall you get so they try to set the difficulty at such a level that it spreads the field. So in an ideal scenario, they'll have set the difficulty. So one person gets the top and tops the route and then everyone else kind of gets to various points a- along the route and falls off at, at those very points. <laughs> yeah, nice spread. So when did you actually start 
climbing because it doesn't for me as a I'm partially sighted it doesn't feel like a natural thing to suddenly to start climbing how did it work for you I like to joke that I didn't really have much choice so I mentioned briefly that I moved around when I was young so I was born in London um, but then moved out to briefly in the Lake District when I was kind of like a very young my dad was part of the mountain rescue in the Lake District and he oh, took cool. me climbing basically as soon as I could walk. So I got taken up my first climbing route when I was two and a bit, I think. And then I led my first route when I was 11. So my dad kind of, yeah, just took me from a really young age and taught me taught me everything you need to know. Because for, for outdoor climbing, uh, different to indoor climbing, you definitely need like kind of an apprenticeship. Um, there's a load of, you know, safety critical uh, skills that you need to pick up. You either need to go on a training course to learn them or have someone who already knows and is prepared to kind of teach you as it were and I was very lucky that you know my dad could could take me out and teach me. Mountain rescue my goodness was that a voluntary basis or was that something needed for work? All mountain rescue is voluntary he was quite heavily involved in a like a mountaineering uh, organization when he was down in London and then when we moved up to the lakes obviously he got um, involved with the mountain rescue as kind of like an extension of that and I think we moved down like we had to move we had to leave the lakes for my dad's work so that's when we moved down to Winchester. And how was our old design? That was when I was year four in primary school or something like that. I don't really remember living in the lakes that much. I was a bit too little to remember it, to be honest. And so you decided that climbing, it was instilled in your bones, potentially. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, <laughs> I joked that I didn't have a choice, but obviously I did because I carried on. Like I climbed with my dad at weekends, you know, up until the point where I left for university. And at that point, make your own decisions then. Um, and obviously, it was something that I had grown up with, learned to in, learn to love and something that I decided I wanted to stick with. And so when did you start losing your sight? And are you partially sighted or are you blind? Yeah, I'm blind. I have a bit of light perception now. So I have retinitis pigmentosa or, or brocaine dystrophy. I was born with about 20% of central vision um, and no peripheral vision. So like, the best I could ever do was just about guess at things on the third line of the eye chart and I never had any peripheral. It doesn't really seem like a great baseline, but my parents didn't see it as a, the, a barrier, just uh -huh. you know, took me out anyway. Um, and obviously, I, I guess I inherited partly my attitude from them of like, well, you know, yeah, it's going to be harder for me, but so what? And then over time, my eyesight has gradually deteriorated as more of the my retina dies off, then obviously my eyesight degrades. It was relatively stable through secondary school and uh, the beginning of university. And then the big drop off came like during the first year of my PhD. That's when I like lost the ability to read. Mm -hmm. So I was forced to swap then to, you know, relying more on text to speech software um, because, yeah, I couldn't read anything anymore. It didn't really matter, matter how big you made it. I just don't have the, the sensors to detect those pictures. And today, so I've got a little bit of light perception in quite a restricted field of view. So the analogy I use, it's an imperfect analogy, but imagine you're looking down a drinking straw and the drinking straw's got like six layers of cling film over the end. Mm -hmm. So you can tell not the end of the straw is light or dark. But when I hold my hand up, like one front foot in front of my face, I can't see my hand. And when I'm climbing, I can't see any of the handholds or any of the footholds or any of the safety equipment as I'm placing it. So basically, you know, it's not quite zero, but I don't have any useful sight left. So I never had good sight. You know, when I, when I think back and think about my sight when it was better, Molly, my wife, always reminds me, yeah, but you're... Your what you think is good was still terrible by everyone else's standard. Um, I can't. So in a way, that 
kind of helps because you don't really know what you've lost. Um, it's always been like this for me, so I don't know any different. The film that I watched of you climbing, had you led to that point? So obviously, what were you doing before that to get to that point? Had you done an awful lot of climbs beforehand and that was your the where we're up to now? Or tell me a little bit about being on that journey. Okay, yeah. So let me just start by kind of giving a little bit of an introduction to how climbing works. When you're climbing outside, you always climb in a pair. Um, or you can climb in a three, but there always has to be at least two of you. Um, And that means that there's a leader, the person who goes up first, and a seconder, the person who comes up afterwards. Leader climbs up and they're attached to a rope and they have these various kind of bits of safety equipment, the climber's toys, as Leo puts it in the film. These are things that you put into naturally occurring cracks in the rock and then you loop the rope through them so that if you were to fall off, the rope would catch you and stop you hitting the ground or that's the idea doesn't always work like that that's the idea the gear the kit isn't there to aid your ascent it's only a safety mechanism and the big difference between leading something and seconding it well first of all let's make the point that the difference between those two is absolutely huge it's an order of magnitude when you're climbing up as the leader there's a huge amount more responsibility on you Um, Because you're the one that's got to put this safety equipment into the rock, which isn't straightforward at all. And, you know, if you mess it up, if you don't do it well, then the consequence could well be death. And also, so there's an extra responsibility there, but it's also harder work physically because you've got to hang on with one hand while you're trying to tease this little fiddly piece of safety equipment into a crack, you know, so you're holding the holes and having to maintain these stress positions for far longer than you are if you were a second. Because when you're on second, the rope is above you and you can just climb up You don't need to worry about picking the right piece of gear. The leader's already done that. All you've got to do is get it back out again. So it's a lot easier from that perspective. The other huge element is the psychological aspect. You know, when you're the leader, if you were to fall off, you might be going quite a long way. um, And the consequences could be, you know, pretty serious. Death is the worst, but obviously the hospital hospital and you know Mm. if you if you if it's been a long time since you placed your last piece of gear you're going to go a long way so let's say that you placed a piece of gear two meters below you if you fall off at that point you're probably going to go about five meters because you got two meters to the last piece of gear then once you've fallen to that you've still got two meters of slack out uh, slack in the rope so you'll fall another two meters and then the ropes will stretch so you're probably going to go about five meters you know and then if if it was 10 meters since your last piece of gear then you're suddenly looking at 25 meter fall let's not be taking too many of those in terms of learning to lead that was something that my my dad taught me when i was little um you know like i said earlier i led my first route when i was 11 when i turned up at university i could already lead um which was reasonably unusual most people who were involved with the climbing club that was their first experience of climbing so you had to have a lot of training to reach that point to do the Manohoi. So tell me about that in your training and where you got to that point. So a lot of it comes down to experience. You know, I've been doing this for absolutely years and I started climbing with Molly at university. Obviously, we got together and climbed together and we don't keep a totally assiduous log of all the routes we do. She's better at it than I am. But (laughs) we've logged like 1,300 routes together. So it's not like we just decided we were going to do this challenge and trained for that. We were climbers through and through. And over time, we've built up the experience that enables us to take on these, you know, harder, more challenging routes. So the first time we kind of did a C stack was in 2008. We'd just both graduated from university and we went up to the west coast of Scotland to a 
plumbing area called Reef. And Molly was flicking through the guidebook and noticed this sea stack, the old man of Stur, which is kind of like the old man of Hoy's little brother. It's mm-hmm. uh, about half and it's a bit easier. And we went and did that, me, Molly and my dad. Uh, and that was a, a grand day out. Like anytime you've got to begin your climb by stripping off and swimming across the swimming across a channel to like get to the bottom of your route is a in a big adventure um so that was in 2008 and once we'd done that we're like right okay at some point we better go and do the the old man of hoy then um so that's kind of when the seed first got sown i guess the sea stack is a pillar of rock that comes up straight out the sea so you know where you have um arches in the sea like durdle door over time as geology proceeds the bridge that connects that pillar to the mainland falls away and you're left with this freestanding pillar that's not connected to the mainland anymore. Now, things like the old man of Stor, then you might have to literally swim out to the or get a boat out to the bottom of it because there's a, a channel of sea between it and the mainland. For the old man of Hoy, where the arch used to be has collapsed and formed like a little causeway, but basically it's like a freestanding rock tower that is 100 or so meters high or well, depends how big it is really, but I think the old man of Hoy is 137 meters tall. It's taller than the London Eye, and it's about twice the height of Big Ben, I think. When I watched the film, I just thought even getting up to that stack was petrifying enough for me. You know, I just I wouldn't be able to see to get to that point. So I was amazed. And then you then you have to do the ascent afterwards. It's just incredible what you did. Yeah, in some ways, the descent to the stack is probably the most dangerous bit because at that point, it's it's a path, but it's not a good one. It's kind of like a foot wide path that's fallen away due to erosion at points. And if you were to stumble, well, yeah, Leo says it in the film, you'd probably die um, because Mm. you'd be going, you know, straight down hundreds and hundreds of meters to the the crashing waves below. It's not something that's new though. Often when you go climbing, the descent off the top of the crag is down a little wet gully that's all slippery and stuff. So it's not the worst one I've ever done. It wasn't great, but yeah, we're Molly and I are well accustomed to these things now. Do you have a plan before you start? Climbs are usually described in like guidebooks. So there's a description of what the route is, but that won't be particularly extensive. So it'll read something like climb the slab for three meters until you reach the ledge, leave the ledge by a by an undercut on the right and finish up the crack above. That would be an example description of a climb. Mm. Yeah, it's not particularly in depth but for something like the old man of hoy so the first thing to say is it's six pitches now a pitch is kind of like when you break a climb up into sections you can't climb the old man of hoy in one go because it's 137 meters tall and my ropes are only right. your ropes are only 60 meters long your ropes uh-huh. aren't long enough to do it in one go and also and you don't you can't necessarily climb 60 meters every time because you've got to stop at like a naturally occurring ledge or somewhere that's sensible to break out you do have kind of like a plan for each pitch in terms of hopefully molly will be able to see the pitch like from the ground and she'll be able to direct me to holds and if and if that's the case you don't really need to plan that much she can just tell me as i'm going where i need to go because she can see me as i'm climbing up when she stood at the bottom she'll tell me all the information that's in the route description because sometimes it'll say oh yeah there's a an in situ piece of tat or something like that so that's tat is where 
a previous climbing party have left either a piece of equipment or a piece of rope in place or for sections where I'm planning comes in if I'm going to be out of sight of Molly so on the old Manahoy that's unavoidable you climb up and one of the pitches kind of traverses around the tower so Molly's on the like the, let's say the south face of the tower and I've climbed round onto the east face of the tower and obviously you can there's no line of sight from her to me at that point. So then we have to think about, okay, I need to be looking out for these particular kind of rock features. So I'm going to traverse out for five meters and then I'm going to search for a corner to climb up. You know, I've got a, a planned that in advance. Mm. Were there any scary moments on this? Did it all go to plan? It went reasonably smoothly. Well, <laughs> the, the weather that day was uh, pretty um, Scottish in the morning. So <laughs> it took us seven hours to climb it, I think. Um, which isn't too bad when you consider that we had a load of kind of fat, extra fat with, you know, cameras and stuff like that. If you're climbing, it usually takes about an hour per pitch and it's six pitches. So it's a little bit slower, but hey, I'm blind and we're trying to film this thing. So it's not too bad. <laughs> um, there weren't any really kind of scary points that I can remember looking back on it like kind of a year ago. Certainly not like there have been things that have been far scarier. It all went reasonably smoothly. But the yeah. thing is that, I think I'm one of the things that I'm really good at is keeping the fear genie in the bottle. Yeah, I do get scared on occasions, but I don't think that that, that happens very often. And I think that the one of the critical things is you've got to learn to function even when you are scared, because if you lock up and you know start shaking, then often climbers get what's called disco leg or Elvis leg, where their leg kind of judders and uh, shakes and you wind up risking juddering yourself off the foothold. And, you know, so. Um, yeah, I think I'm quite good at kind of staying calm in those high pressure situations because it's not necessarily just a um, it's not just a fear thing. Sometimes it's the fact that your muscles are kind of they're stuck in this contraction in this awkward position um, and they're, they're desperately like trying to move. You know, if you try and hold the stress position for five minutes or something like that, your body will want to do anything to just move the position ever so slightly. So it's not just a fear thing. Part of it is personality and part of it is experience. The more you do these things, the more you kind of build up the skills needed to stay calm and on task in the high pressure situations. What's been your biggest climbing achievement then? Is it Old Man of Hoy or was there any other ones that you've really thought that was amazing? So I think the Old Man of Hoy in terms of trad is probably what up there. It's probably the hardest technically because that is like six pitches quite remote you know uh, and potentially quite serious so there's that uh, and then in 2017 we uh, organized an expedition to greenland so we were there for a month and managed to get two first ascents so that's the first time anyone has ever climbed either of these two mountains so nice. i think that as well so while those weren't as technical climbing difficulty as the old man of hoy when you throw it into the whole package that you are so remote you know it's 200 miles to the nearest civilization from there and the nearest civilization is a hangar a control tower and a runway that they've scraped the snow flat that's it if if something were to happen basically on your own for at least several hours until the chopper could come and get you in a best case scenario and that's not necessarily the case what would you say your future plans are? Tricky in lockdown. Um, <laughs> oh, no. So we had, we had been planning to go to Joshua Tree in the States, but that got canned. So I'm not really putting anything down in kind of in, in ink, as it were. I've got some pencil, some, some things penciled in. So international travel in the UK looks 
questionable for the rest of this year. So we'll probably have to, we'll probably restrict ourselves to go spending some time in Scotland once lockdown is eased a bit further. And then once that's happened, oof, it's hard to say because it's so uncertain. I'd like to go ice climbing in, in Canada. So that's something that we haven't really touched on. Like there's rock climbing in uh, things like the Old Man of Hoy, but then when you go climbing in winter, you're using ice axes and crampons to climb up kind of frozen waterfalls. Yeah, it's kind of like the next level. Well, in some ways, the next level from uh, trad climbing, certainly in terms of seriousness. Would you say that your senses are heightened? Like you do the climbing and everything. And do you think your senses are heightened because you're blind? I think the thing to remember is you don't get any extra information. Because I'm blind, it doesn't mean I can detect stuff that a sighted person can't. It's just the fact that I'm devoting more of my processing capacity to process that data that most sighted people are, you know, just setting aside and not really using i think that you don't really get that much useful information from like hearing or anything like you can use it to kind of gauge where you are so you know whether or not you're up on a, an exposed arete um because you can you can the soundscape is different and also you can often feel the wind swirling around you and if it's if it's overhanging you can often feel the wind coming up from underneath you which is quite a, quite a cool and unusual experience but i think the big thing for me that helps is proprioception so that's having a 3d mental map of yourself in your surroundings um, and the best example of that is that if i climb up and i use a hold for my hand i'll remember where that is in 3d space so when it becomes time to use that as a foothold I can put my foot straight on it because I remember where that that is. So that makes that has some implications. It means that climbing up is a lot easier than traversing because you when you're traversing, especially if sometimes you have to kind of walk your feet out first. You don't get the benefit of having felt something with your hand first. While I do uh, get some sensation through my feet in these like tiny little rock shoes you wear, the sensation is never as good as feeling it with your hands so traversing is kind of harder do you have a quote that while you're climbing somewhere that you think in your head like a mantra or something in your in your life i'm not one for big one for quotes <laughs> uh, i do quite like the not the full version but the quote from june the science fiction book fear is the mind killer i will know my fear that's okay, something cool. that i have uttered to myself you know when when you're up things have got serious <laughs> So yeah, not necessarily one for big quotes. There's a there's that and there's the quote from Nelson Mandela. It always seems impossible until it's done. Very good. Thank you, Jesse, for coming along. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Feel free to get in touch with the team by emailing thevippod at gmail.com.